Our first reading starts at Job 31:33 and continues into chapter 32 up to verse 5. After hearing lots of back and forth conversations between Job and his three friends who have attempted to counsel at times comfort him, Job gives a big testimony to his innocence for all to hear. We'll pick up hearing his very last somewhat angry words before he goes silent. So from verse 33. If I have concealed my sin, as people do, by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defence. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I will present it to him as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me and its furrows are wet with tears, if I've devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakal the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. Our next reading is from Matthew fourteen twenty-two to 33. This is a time when the disciples of Jesus are in great fear, thinking they were going to die. But Jesus called on them to take courage and trust him. Matthew fourteen twenty-two. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You are of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And then they climbed into the boat and the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Thank you, Wayne. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Um, Now, as we come to the book of Job, 
a man who has suffered greatly. Um, it makes us very aware of our own suffering, and I'm sure each one of us is suffering in one way or another. Uh, even today, you might be feeling like your, your trial and your suffering is extremely hard. Um, so hard that everything feels dark. Um, you might feel like your faith is feeble and weak. Uh, when you look up, it's hard to see the face of Jesus. Um, you feel like you're drowning. You feel like you're in a storm and you're just getting pushed around. And so I wanted us to hear that story of Jesus reaching down to pick Peter up out of the storm as we go into Job. Someone sent me this picture during the week and it captures that we can look up and, it, and sometimes it's, it's hard to see the face of Jesus, but Jesus has us. That's what we need to hold in our heart. Uh, that's what Jesus shows Peter and shows us that he's got us. He's reaching down to pull us out of our distress. And that's the message that a friend of Job wants to give to Job, Elihu. We're going to meet Elihu, who is a faithful friend, who comes alongside Job, and he wants Job to know that God has got him. God has got us. God, in the midst of suffering, which for many times we don't understand exactly how it all joins together, and we, and we find it inexplicable. We don't know exactly why we're suffering right now, but in the midst of it, in the crux of it, God is actually using it to draw us to himself, to draw us out of our distress, to draw us into a relationship where God truly is seen by us as God and our Lord. Would you pray with me as we start? Heavenly Father, we come before you now. Um, for many of us, with lots of pain and hurt, even darkness, and we feel like we are drowning. We ask that you will speak to us today through your word. Help us to see how big you are and what you are doing out of your loving kindness for our good. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, a little bit of orientation, particularly if you have joined us for the first time. We're in the book of Job, and the story starts with Job, who has a, a wonderful life, a blessed life, particularly with his family. And then the first chapters of Job cut to a scene in heaven. It's kind of strange to go there, but what we see is Satan. Satan comes up before God and actually says that God has got it completely wrong about Job. Job is not authentic and genuine in his relationship with God. And he wants to put Job under pressure to prove that to God. And God does allow this testing to come to Job. Um, and it's excruciating, as Brad said, to see the, the devastating things that Satan does to Job. He takes away everything he has. Takes away his family takes away all of his estate and wealth, removes his health, even destroys his reputation publicly. 
And it's very exhausting to read through, but for chapter after chapter, there's all these conversations where Job is trying to understand what's happened because he doesn't know about this conversation and this drama that took place in heaven. He's wrestling going, what has happened to me? Why has God allowed this? And he's got friends that come up to him and they say, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something. Either you're not aware of it now or there's something in your past. Scratch around, search, find that. Then you'll be able to confess it, repent, and God will restore you. And Job does do a searching, but he can't find anything that he has deliberately hidden from God that would deserve a judgment that wipes out everything and leaves him as just a man with a feeble breath. And that drives Job to a very agonizing and spiritual agony where he concludes that he's innocent but with what he's experiencing, God must be unjust, even not good. This is where Job seems to get, especially with his last words. And then we hit the transition that we read with Wayne, and it's a major transition in the book of Job, where the three friends have stopped speaking, Job has stopped speaking, and the narrator enters in, and tells us a few things. Uh, So if you've got your Bibles, open up to chapter 32, verse 1, uh, and we see that these three men, Job's friends, stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And he certainly was someone who felt he was innocent and, and wanted to parade his righteousness before God. It's staggering the way he speaks, finally speaks his last words. Um, Back at verse 35, you see, um, he says, Oh, if someone could hear me, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Now, this is after, actually, uh, one and a half chapters where he has just listed and catalogued all the things he has done right in honoring God throughout his entire life. And he calls God to come and put his indictment in writing and God to see Job's own defense of his innocence. Uh, He says that he would wear it on his shoulder. So I take it that's like a sash. Wear it like a crown and I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as a ruler. Or another translation word could be prince. So... He's very confident of his righteousness before God um, and even wants to parade that for God to see. The narrator says the friends stopped because Job was righteous in his own eyes. Uh, Then we see there's a new character, Elihu. So in verse 2, 32 verse 2, Elihu is a young man who became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. Uh, Elihu is angry that Job is justifying himself over God, before God, over God, um, and the friends and no one else is, the friends and no one else around is stepping up to, to say anything about it. Um, this is where we get to one of those things, uh, the, the dynamics of 
wisdom literature in the Bible. Uh, there's wisdom literature of which Job is a part of, and it makes you ponder. It's designed to raise questions and gaps and leave you hanging and force you to reread and read again, and you think one way and then you go, have I got that right? You go back again, reread and reread. That's what wisdom literature does, it gets under our skin. I liken it to a gobstopper. And I went to the shop and bought a whole pack of gobstoppers. I couldn't believe the big one in there. But you know, gobstoppers are those lollies that you put in your mouth and you have to suck on them for a very, very, very long time until you get to the centre. So I'd like to offer a gobstopper to maybe Eric. You'd like to? Yeah, come, come on down. Yeah. You can have this gobstopper and you can, we want you to suck on that throughout the service. There we go. We'll see how you go. Um, don't bite it because you'll break your teeth. Yeah, just suck away and um, feel free to pass it on. Let some other people have a suck on. <laughs> okay. So, oh, don't choke either. <laughs> Sign this waiver here. <laughs> Lovely. We'll check back in with him uh, shortly. So. We're, we're on a gobstopper, right? We're sucking and you get to Elihu and suddenly you go, wow, there's someone else in this conversation that has been there all along. Who is he? What are we to make of this guy? Um, we hear that he is young and angry. Um, now, in the wisdom literature, particularly the book of Proverbs, that should raise some questions, even doubts, because the wisdom literature will often tell us that Young people are very naive and inexperienced. So here we have someone about to speak up publicly. Uh, can he be trusted? Is he really going to add anything? And to be angry time and time again, the wisdom literature says that when we speak out of anger, we usually speak foolishness. So what are we to make now that Elihu has stood up and he wants to say some things? Because he's young and naive, or seems to be naive, and he does sort of do this long introduction, uh, many people automatically assume that Elihu is to be taken negatively. He's young, he's angry, uh, sounds like a windbag. Is this just an, a young upstart? And you can read Elihu that way. I've come to see him in a much more positive light. As I've sucked on this gobstopper, and I'm still sucking, is... Elihu is a faithful friend that God brings alongside Job in order to correct his perspective for his good. And there's lots of reasons why um, I've landed there. Um, some of the big pieces are Elihu is never condemned by God in the end um, and Job never responds. Like He's sort of pushed back every time other people have spoken to him and here you don't see him push back. The other little interesting thing is his name Elihu means God, he is my God, he is my God. Now a name can just be a name but it's interesting because you watch Elihu, you see he is so keen for God's honour and he wants to bring God's honour and glory back to the perspective of Job. And the first thing he does is show Job that you and I we are mortals, we are not God. And so we'll dip into the first of, we'll pretty much just stay in the first speech of Elihu. He does speak about four times. 
But he wants to impress upon Job that we are but mortals. We are not God. So I'll put um, a fair bit of the text up on the screen so we can read along. Um, And we'll pick it up from verse 6. That's on the screen. Okay. So Elihu comes up before Job. Um, The reason I've picked it up at verse 6, like I said, he does a long introduction basically saying, I'm going to tell you some good wisdom. I'm going to tell you. Uh, Then he says, I am the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy on you. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure. I have done no wrong. I am clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. Elihu quotes back to Job some of the very provocative and outrageous things Job has said um, in the middle of his suffering. We know that Job is not suffering because of a particular sin he has not confessed. That's, that's made clear to us at the start of the, the drama. But as he's wrestled with this, in the middle of his suffering and agony, he has started to say some things about God that are outrageous. Um, further, over in chapter 34, Elihu will also say some other things that Job has said, where he says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Or another way to translate that is, takes away my justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. So Job's saying that God is making me out to be a liar before people. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts me with an incurable wound. Uh, Lots of these summaries are indeed the things that Job has said, where he seems to be saying that God is not just and God is not good. Let me take you to a couple of snapshots of what Job says. So this is in 9.22. Uh, 9.22, he says, so this is a chapter where he pretty much says, I, the way I see the world, God's apparent wisdom amounts to the world just looking wobbly. So maybe God isn't that wise. Um, and then he makes this statement that declares, um, it's all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. The implication seems to be that Job thinks God is not just. As he experiences his suffering and wrestles through it, he's arrived at that. Or take this one. This is from chapter 16, verse 9 to 14. Now, this is, this is one of the most intense and extreme things that Job says. Um, let's pick it up from verse 9. God assails me and tears me in his anger. And gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens his eyes on me, his piercing eyes. People open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. 
His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. That's intense to hear, isn't it? The implication that God is not only not just, but not good, even cruel. And to this, Elihu comes alongside Job and says, what you say is not right. So come back to chapter 33, verse 12. But I tell you, so I tell you, Job, in this you are not right. Even righteous is the word. You are not righteous, for God is greater than mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? Um, I've put up there um, an alternate translation of that last line. New King James Version picks it up a bit more literally. Um, Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of his words. So Elihu is seeing that Job, a mere mortal, has come before God and is calling God to give an account to him. And surely that's, that's how, how he was, his last words. Uh, quite brazenly, almost summoning God like you'd uh, whistle for a dog to heal to you so that God can watch and learn Job's righteousness. He would parade before him like a prince. And Elihu wants to correct Job's perspective that he's arriving at and say, Job, you are speaking what is wrong. Uh, You are starting to say the unthinkable. Back over in chapter 34, um, a couple of things he says along those lines. So verse 10, so listen to me, you men of understanding. So he says to everyone, including Job, Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. And then over in verse 12, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. It seems that Job, according to Elihu, has got to a distorted perspective, as much as we'd like to empathise and understand how this might come about, has got to a distorted perspective where he seems to be engaging in that root problem of humanity, which is pride. Where we say, God hasn't got it right, we know best. That is the essence of pride, and it's the deepest problem that all of humanity have. To invert the distinction between the creator and us as creatures. We are to worship him, to give an account before him, um, not the other way around. Elihu seems to be raising for Job this lurking danger within of pride that can rise up in the heart. Now Job has found that God is cruel and uncaring at points, Um, And one of the frustrations that Job has felt is that every time he calls out to God, God's not speaking. God isn't answering him. Now, Elihu wants to show Job that God has been speaking 
in various ways all along to him. Let's come back to chapter 33, verse 14. I've got that on the screen as well. For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when the deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their bed, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Elihu says that in, in various ways, God is speaking to raise within people worries and terrors so that they might turn away from their pride, verse 17. It's a warning. Um, maybe the idea is things like uh, visions in the night or, or, or dreams, they're, they're like nightmares, um, and we all can relate to that. <laughs> Our nightmares often are expressive of worries that we have. We might even have daymares where we're ruminating and we just can't stop seeing uh, dread before us. And these terrors, they, they warn us that we are vulnerable. That's what worry is about. It's a recognition that we don't have power and control. Um, to learn that you are vulnerable is a good thing rather than prancing around with pride that we can control everything. Um, he speaks in their ears. That, that might be an image of like our conscience, uh, that inner, inner voice warning us. Uh, but God wants us to turn from wrongdoing and to keep from pride. Um, and in that, God is graciously speaking. Elihud says to Job, he's graciously speaking to you to, to remind humanity of their vulnerability. Another way that he speaks picks up in verse 19. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress. Oh, I've got that on the screen. There we go. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. Another way God speaks, according to Elihu, is to bring frailty to our existence or to notice our frailty. Uh, as we lie in beds of pain, um, as the course of our life we see our bodies break down in different ways, we are ever inching closer to that point where uh, we are at the pit uh, and our life is before the messengers of death, which another way to translate is the executioners of death. God speaks through our suffering in a way that he wants us to face our mortality, to know that we, along with the human race, are mortal. In these ways, Elihu says that God teaches us that we are mortal, we are not 
God. And that is a good and gracious thing. Even though it's hard, because of the reality of pride, which we might not even see, it's a good and merciful, gracious thing that God brings us to that awareness. I've heard an analogy of um, a water jar, which can look pure and clear, yet it has sediment at the bottom. Um, So from one perspective, it looks clear and pure. And maybe we could say, you know, Job's life does have that perception about it. But then once you shake it, if there is sediment there, you shake it, and suddenly even a tiny bit of sediment makes the water cloudy. Um, I think Elihu is suggesting that as Job has been suffering, and, and we know that that's on a large canvas with lots of other reasons for it, but in the middle of it, uh, he's been shaken to be aware of this pride that can lurk within everyone and to, to see how dangerous that is. And as we've been saying, it's far from cruel. It's gracious and compassionate that God does this to wake us up so that we can hear the good news of the gospel. To be open to hear the good news of the gospel. And this is what Elihu says next. So come back to chapter 33, verse 22. Pick it up uh, at that moment where a person is drawing near to the pit and their life is before the executioners. Yet if there is an angel at their side a messenger, one out of a thousand. Uh, just I'll point out, I want, I want us to hear each line of this next part, um, really dwell on it. Uh, so again, we're, we're at the point of execution in the imagery and there's an angel that comes to the side of that person at the point of the execution in verse 22. And... He's a messenger. Uh, In fact, the key word underneath is the word mediator. And it's important to point that out because throughout Job has been desiring and hoping that there might be a mediator. But this messenger, a mediator, is one out of a thousand. I think that's a way to say unique. So not there's one in every thousand, but one of a kind. This messenger at the side of the person before the executioners, is sent to tell that person how to be upright. And he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them, spare that person from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. As harrowing as the imagery is, isn't it beautiful at the same time? That the point of execution, a gracious word comes where God is called upon to stop, stop, the process of execution, um, a ransom has been found and declared. 
This is graciousness. This is good news. And Elihu wants Job to realize um, no matter how impeccable your life is, no matter how much your righteousness is, you stand one with humanity and all of us. How could we ever go before God and parade our righteousness? We need a ransom from him. We need God to provide a ransom. We don't have time to go into it, but much of chapter 34, that's what Elihu is saying. He says, look around, the reality of death, whenever it comes to people that we all see, is God bringing justice to humanity that, on the whole, has rejected him. And that is why we are mortal. That is why we have mortality. So far be it from any of us, even Job, with impeccable righteousness, to parade that before God. No, we need a ransom. How can we not think of Jesus at this point in the New Testament? Jesus, who is described as God coming into the flesh, taking on mortality. Jesus, who as he walked around said, I come to give my, ransom, my life as a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus, who on the cross, as it's recorded in Luke 23, cries out, Father, forgive them. And I have, to, I have to read for us Romans 3. I don't have it on the board, but hear these words from God. For all have, so Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies, the one who declares that a person is justified, those who have faith in Jesus. God gets our attention through our vulnerability and mortality so that we are open to hear the gospel and receive that good news that we need a ransom. Uh, back at chapter 33, verse 26, um, look at this. After the ransom has been proclaimed to that person, then that person, I've got it, yep, then that person can pray to God and find favour with him. When you hear the gospel, that a ransom has been paid, you can pray to God and you find favour with him. You can repent and believe. And they will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being and they will go and tell others. Um, wow, you hear the gospel, you pray, you receive it and you go and tell others. What do they say? I have sinned, I have perverted what is right. Do I have that up there? Yep. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. Your story's been changed. You go and tell all who will hear. 
This is my story. Glory came down and poured glory upon me. He ransomed my life. This is for you too. And in verse 29... Elihu says, God does all these things to a person twice, even three times. A phrase that means over and over. To turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. In the midst of suffering, even in its inexplicability, there's a goodness that is graciousness and mercy coming from God towards us. And he does it over and over again. He is full of compassion. That's worth sucking on, hey, pondering. How are you going with... um... Ooh, it's changed (laughs) colour. Okay, if you'll bear with me, if you bear bear with me for one final point, I just want to reiterate again, because Elihu does this, uh, that in the of our suffering that God is actually using that to woo us to himself pulling us out of distress so that we are not holding on to anything else suffering often has to pry our fingers up so we let go of what we are holding on to and hold on to God alone so if you'll bear with me come over to chapter 36 we'll just quickly peek into Uh, the final speech of Elihu, um, because here he makes the point, um, God is doing all this so that we truly, truly have God as God and our Lord. Not a puny God. We're not playing religious kind of facades. God truly is known to us as our God and our Lord who brought us into relationship with him alone. So let's dip into chapter 36. I'll read a a fair bit of this and just make a few brief comments. Um, So even Elihu said, bear with me a little longer. So I thought I'd be cheeky. Uh, And I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. God is mighty but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. Hear that? God doesn't despise people. He's not bringing any suffering out of cruelty. He's mighty and firm in his purpose. A justice where he does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. Think of the Lord Jesus who laid down his life for us so that we would have his righteousness, so that we can be raised up and exalted with him. Picking it up from verse 8. But if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, so their experience of suffering, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. Um, I guess that, you know, when you look at the whole of Scripture, that means sometimes you learn through the consequences of your sin. Sometimes God brings suffering to make us aware of sin. But even if we haven't specifically sinned in a certain way, there's a general suffering that we're hearing about here that God brings to us so that we are not arrogant. 
He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. If they worship him, they will be raised up. But then verse 12, But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbour resentment, even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. That's a line that means they, if you, the godless will have a pagan's end. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. So again, again Elihu is showing Job that suffering can have a good and gracious purpose from God. Where the whole world, God is calling the whole world to attention, trying to get their attention, um, so that they might repent and worship Him. But there is a tragedy that so many people just ignore that and are godless in heart, as verse 13 said. Uh, In chapter 35, beforehand, which we're not really going into, um, there's a tragic line where Elihu paints the picture just before verse 10, or verse 9, so 35 verse 9, that you're right, Job, there's so much oppression in the world, because Job, that's one of the things that Job's wrestled with. I look out and I just see oppression, even good people suffering and being oppressed. But verse 10, but no one says, where is God my maker, who gives them songs in the night, who helps them get through? Um, verse 12, he does not answer when people cry out because of their arrogance. As I've been meditating on that this week, it's, been, it's heartbreaking to see on our TV screens up close uh, wars again and the intense oppression for young and old people. Um, what's heartbreaking is that despite the politics and despite what side... There's this great tragedy that in the midst of it, so many people refuse to cry out to their maker. And that in part is why there is continual oppression. But to those who cry out, God is there. Look at this lovely line in verse 16. So back at chapter 36, verse 16. Elihu turns to Job and says, He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction, to the comfort of your table, laden with choice food. Through this distress, God is wooing Job and wooing us out of relying on anything else but God alone so that he can put us in a spacious place. It's a lovely image that comes up in lots of the Psalms about salvation and deliverance being... uh, delivered from narrow constriction, the grave which constricts, being delivered to a spacious place in a banquet with God. He's wooing you from the jaws of distress. Um, You think of Jesus, um, the writer to the Hebrews comments about Jesus himself, the sinless perfect one, cried out with tears and painful cries to his father, 
for help, the one who could deliver him from death. And it says that even Jesus learnt obedience, a word that means to worship God alone, learnt obedience through what he suffered. Such is the gracious mercy of God. He's wooing us from the jaws of distress. I'd like to finish by playing a song that um, I've been playing on repeat a fair bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, As I've been meditating on this and thinking about my own pains and sufferings in life, thinking about people I know here, um, and even just understanding that all of us uh, are having some deep hurts. Um, To know that even though we can't explain it all, even though we know that our suffering is caught up in a large canvas, spiritual dynamics, which the book of Job takes us to, um, God never hangs us out like an innocent person or even Job innocently to, to, to win a bet in heaven. Whatever the drama in heaven, um, whatever that is that's happening, Elihu teaches us, as he teaches Job, that God is using suffering for our good so that we can be drawn out of ourselves to see God as God, to hold on to God as our Lord alone. And so this song has this wonderful line, um, which if it, without dwelling in this kind of scripture can sound trite, but it's beautiful when we understand this, that every thread of sorrow has its place in God's tapestry of grace. It's a song that comes from the Gettys. It's called The Perfect Wisdom of Our God. The Perfect Wisdom of Our God. Let that be our prayer and ponder on the words. Close your eyes or look at the lyrics on the screen today. The Perfect Wisdom of Our God.